When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. From heaven there came a sound like a violent wind, divided tongues as a fire appeared on each of them. All were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. They heard speaking in their native language, each of them. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Almost 20 years ago, one of our Barton Clinton Gordy presenters, Dr. William Mallard, came to us from Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta. That morning, he spoke twice from our pulpit, but he asked, may I get back to doing what I do better, and that is teaching? Could I speak from down front? Could I have a blackboard of some kind and marker? And of course, we granted that for him, fixed it for him. And Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, he spoke from down front. He treated all of us as he was treating his students just before he left. Uh, He would ask one of you to read a verse, and he would comment, another to read a second verse, and then comment. On one of those nights, he dealt with Acts chapter 2. And he saw Acts chapter 2 as somehow being an answer to the Tower of Babel problem. You remember that early in Genesis, when that part of Genesis got written, it was already at least 300 years after Moses had led the people to freedom out of Egypt. But when they thought about pride, they thought about those pharaohs, they thought about the great pyramids where they had been slave labor. They thought about the attempts of the Egyptians to climb all the way up to God and how futile those attempts were. They imagined that that was a good way to talk about all the different languages they could hear coming in and out of the uh, Egyptian area. Oh, it must be because God confused everybody by giving numbers of people different languages so they couldn't cooperate and build a tower up to him. He saw Acts 2 as being an answer to that, as God's Holy Spirit coming now and enabling his disciples to take the good news of Jesus Christ uh, to every language group on the planet. More scholars see Luke's idea as being that of a theophany, Theos in Greek, God, of course. Epiphany, being to show, to reveal, to make manifest. So a revelation of God. I mean, later when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Luke didn't have all that carefully formulated. By the time he wrote, it would take the church several centuries to get that formulated as well as they did eventually. But nonetheless, the answer to Jesus' promise... I'm going. I will ask my father. He will send you the paraclete, the helper, the advocate, the comforter, that one who will remind you of everything I've told you and teach you all things that you need to know. Thursday night, Dr. Kroll and I were at an annual dinner of the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. One of the persons and groups being awarded special citation for a job well done, Congregation B'nai Imuna and Rabbi Mark Fitzeman. 
They sent a note saying how honored they were to be named recipient of the award, but they would not be present because they had to be celebrating Shavuot. Shavuot. This week, the Feast of Weeks, a week of weeks after Passover. In Jesus' time, there were three occasions every year when observant Jews were to do their best to make their way to Jerusalem. In the fall, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. In the spring, Passover. And seven weeks later, plus a day, the 50th, the Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. It is on that occasion that our scripture is to be understood. Number one, a minister cannot resist the temptation to underline that first important line, they were all together in one place. If there's one thing a preacher probably worries about more than anything else is, will they come? When I went to First Methodist Church Houston to be associate to Dr. Charles Allen, I was to be the Sunday night preacher. I had that position the next seven years. His preaching every Sunday morning, unless he was on vacation, in which case I preached Sunday morning, I, I, I preaching every Sunday night in that great church. I'd been there only a few weeks when I noticed that in the sacristy where we put on our robes, Dr. Allen would then sit and look out the window. There was a major one-way street coming into downtown Houston right alongside that window and I asked are, are you looking for Mrs. Allen oh no no he said she doesn't come till Sunday school and the later service he had three grown children I said are you looking for your sons and daughter the grandchildren no no he said they come later to Sunday school and the later service I said well you just looked like you were looking for somebody and he said no I'm doing what I do every Sunday I sit here and look out the window and wonder if this is the day nobody comes. He was drawing bigger crowds than any other Methodist preacher in America, and even he. I look out the window and wonder, is this the day nobody comes? Cyprian, born about the year 200 on the northernmost coast of Africa in Carthage. His parents were pagans, very wealthy ones. They had done quite well in business. They raised him in their pagan faith with a number of different gods. They gave him the best education available in that day in Carthage. He became an orator in the courts, equivalent to our modern-day attorneys. At age 45, he came under the influence of a Christian group, sought baptism, and affirmed his faith. A year later, they made him the Bishop of Carthage. A responsible position, a place of leadership, and then a new Caesar in Rome named Valerian. Valerian declared that every subject in the Roman Empire would offer sacrifice to him as their god. Christians just couldn't do that. Cyprian Bishop would not do that. And so the authorities came to make a point with him and sentenced him to be beheaded. The soldiers came. When they started to put the blindfold on him, he said, I can do it myself. He put on his own blindfold, knelt down on his knees, put his head down, 
and they cut off his head. The Catholic Church made him a saint. For 1,800 years, Saint Cyprian. I want you to hear one line he wrote. How can one claim God as father if one does not claim church as mother? They were together in one place, expectantly waiting. Expectantly waiting. Number two. Luke is trying to describe this. He says, well, it was sort of like a great wind. It was sort of like tongues of fire on each one's head, meaning on every disciple's head. Paul had already written before Luke wrote, the Holy Spirit stands ready to whisper to our spirit that we are children of God. When we baptize someone, when we confirm our young, we, we pray. I ask you to pray with me that this person will hear God's Holy Spirit in her, his deepest heart. Oh, I know you. You're my daughter. You're my son. I'm so glad you've come to this moment of faith in me, that you trust me. You know, just two weeks ago, we went on Sunday afternoon to begin annual conference in Oklahoma City. I was excited to hear that our preacher, along with our bishops preaching on Tuesday night, was going to be Dr. Eugene Lowry. I'd never heard him preach. He was professor of preaching at St. Paul's Seminary in Kansas City, one of our 13 Methodist seminaries, for many, many years. He's retired now. He held a prestigious chair there, the Bill McElvaney Chair in Homiletics at St. Paul's. I heard him teach preachers one time out at our canyon camp here in Oklahoma. He loves jazz music, and that night he played jazz for us on the piano. He was playing at that time in a small ensemble in Kansas City when he had time. He said a sermon sort of like jazz. You begin with a well-known tune, and then you sort of move off, you know, all kind of strange places, exploring this, exploring that. 10, 15 minutes, and then you come back to the familiar tune. So I was sitting right down front that night, waiting to hear how he actually preached. And he did it just the way he said. He began with a familiar story. Jesus, just beginning his ministry, according to the Synoptic Gospels, walked down to the seashore one morning when Simon and Andrew, James and John, had been fishing all night and were just approaching the shore there at Capernaum when Jesus stepped out and said, Why don't you put your nets over there? Dr. Lowry reminded us what four professional fishermen probably would have said to this carpenter, stonemason from a little town called Nazareth, uh, Go tend to your business. But there was something about the way he said it that they dropped the nets where he told them, and suddenly there was more fish than they could haul in. And Simon Peter, well, Dr. Lowry said, what would you have done? Had you been a fisherman who caught fish sometimes and didn't catch fish other times? Wow, come and help us. We could make a fortune here. You telling us where to put the nets and we hauling in the fish. Instead, Simon fell down on his knees and said, 
Get away from me. I'm unclean. Well, that was the familiar tune. Then Dr. Lowry said, my wife and I went to see our grandson receive a special award. He's been in karate classes forever. And he studied the martial arts and studied the martial arts. And he's received one belt and then another belt. But this was a big night and he wanted his grandmother and me to be there. We were there. And we saw them come out and bow to each other. And he went through all these motions that he had been taught. And finally his instructors left the room and came back with this next belt. And when they took off the old one and put on the new one, we were so proud. Our grandson had worked really hard. He had earned that belt. We have a granddaughter, he said. She's loved campfire all these years. She's worked so hard. Finally, she had a sash with pins and ribbons and awards sewn to it. Finally, they just filled the whole sash. And then she said to her grandmother and me, I want you to come. I'm receiving the last big award. And we went, and we were so proud. She had worked so hard. She had earned every award. And then he brought us back to the familiar tune. But what about Simon? Why didn't he ask Jesus to go in business with him? Why did he tell him to go away? Because he realized he brought nothing to the party. He did not deserve. He had not earned. Jesus had given. Instead, Jesus said to him, I want you to come with me. I'm going to teach you how to fish for people. And those four dropped their nets and followed him. The Holy Spirit on each one, you are my daughter, you are my son, I know you well. Number three, suddenly they're empowered. They have abilities they've never had before. I mean, these Galileans... Jews would even say, look at these Galileans. What do they know about languages? Some of our best scholars think that the people who lived up in Galilee, maybe 97, 98% of them couldn't even read nor write their own language. And now they're speaking to all these people in Jerusalem in all these different tongues so that each can understand. Wow. They've been waiting and waiting now, finally, they had been gifted. I didn't ask Dr. Kroll what he was going to say in his pastoral prayer. He didn't ask me what the points of the sermon would be this week. But if you listen to the prayer, listen to point three here. This point about being now empowered. Waiting and waiting and being empowered. A month ago, Gail and I were seeing all of the great museums, many, many of them in New York. We were there 10, 10 days and nights. One day we went to the Museum of Natural History. And she and I both love natural history. We spent seven hours in that one museum that day. And we walked and walked and walked that day looking. But it's fascinating to see a great museum of natural history. And they have great rock walls where they show you no sign of life in this rock whatsoever. But then you come up a little bit higher, and guess what? One-celled life. 
and then a little higher two-cell life, and then four cells, and then 16 cells, and a dinosaur. They have wings where they tell you about human beings, about all our cousins that we know about. They show you that DNA-wise, we're 98.2% like this one, 98.4% like that one, 98.9% like that one. And then finally, Homo sapien, something different from all the others. Homo sapien, with a frontal lobe now on its brain that made it possible for it to project itself into the future. Behavioral scientists call this self-transcendence. The ability to go beyond oneself, transcendence in Latin literally is transcendere, to climb across, to climb over into the future and look back. Of course, if you look far enough, you see death. As far as behavioral scientists can tell, we're the only species that knows it's going to die. Oh, salmon swim up a familiar stream to the very spot where they were spawned, and they die, but they don't know they're going to die. They're just acting out a genetic code. Humans know if I look far enough out, I come to death. Scientists are still trying to figure out how life developed exactly as it did. And you know the old story about why we have giraffes. Behavioral scientists believe it's because as the jungles gradually disappeared, animals that had a little bit longer neck could eat branches, leaves, higher up than those with shorter necks. And so those with longer necks were able to eat and procreate and have offspring that had longer necks and longer necks. And so behavioral scientists talk about humans who make really foolish mistakes that cause them to die young and not procreate as being giraffes with short necks. They believe that in Africa, as the jungles disappeared, those who could run faster to chase prey, who could dissipate heat better, taller, thinner. They seem to have survived. They run marathons really well. In the northern climes, north and south toward the poles, those who were shorter, heavier, stockier, held heat better, and they survived better. So you have different body types. Scientists are always looking for how we are wired what has happened to us through these thousands of years, traits that somehow were kept because they helped us survive. And this is where it comes to Dr. Kroll's prayer. I was reading an article, Since We've Been Home from Vacation, written by a researcher at the University College in London, saying optimism is hardwired into humans. And her contention is, that people who are optimistic stand longer with the fishing pole. They believe that fish is coming any minute. Those who are optimistic stay longer on the hunt, just sure something's going to come by in a minute that they can use to feed their family that night. 
Those who are optimistic keep digging for one more tuber that they can eat, their family can have for dinner. They dig deeper. They dig harder. They stay longer at the task. This woman researcher was saying, I believe we have done as well as we've done because the pessimist among us quit and the optimist among us kept on digging on. Seven weeks, seven weeks, they waited and waited, and then he came. He came. The power of God, the power of the resurrected Christ came. As Jesus had put a face on Almighty God, he now put a face on the Holy Spirit. We can understand more and better what this Spirit wanted to do among us because it was of the same stuff, our early mothers and fathers would say, as Almighty God and of Jesus of Nazareth. Number four, they were amazed and perplexed when they heard each in his own native tongue these powerful deeds of God. Now, those of you who've heard me preach on Luke's gospel or the book of Acts know that I've reminded you Luke loves this word for power. He just uses it over and over and over in both the gospel and the book of Acts. It's dunamis in Greek, from which we get dynamite and dynamic and dynamo, all those words. The noun means power. The verb is to be able. To be able. The Holy Spirit will enable you to do what you need to do. It will accompany you. It will indwell within you. It will lead you if you will follow. My last funeral a few days ago was Fred Daniel Jr.'s funeral. His family had decided they would like to place the body in the cemetery first, and then an hour later we would have the service here at the church. I met the family out at Rose Hill. Uh, I had my little service book. I turned to a scripture that I thought would be meaningful and helpful to them, and I read it. And then I said, let us pray. And I read one of my favorite prayers out of that service book. It includes these words, O God, before Fred was ours, he surely was yours. That reminded me of a story Fred Craddock told. I looked it up. Fred Craddock says when he retired from teaching homiletics at our Candler School of Theology at Emory University, he and his wife were living in a little place there in North Georgia. There was a small town hospital there, just 30 beds. He said instead of all the preachers from every little church going by every day, they just had a schedule, and one guy would go Mondays and one person would go Tuesday and so on, and on his day he went. And he said when he walked in the door, he could hear noise down the little hallway, and somebody said, we have a new baby. And he said, I hurried down because in a little hospital with 30 beds, they don't have many babies. And everybody in the hospital was excited. We have a new baby. And he said he went down. They were oohing and on. The little baby was behind the glass window. You couldn't hear it, but you could see. Nurses tending to it. And he said, as I walked up a little closer, I said, is it a boy or a girl? And he said, oh, it's a girl. Has it been named yet? Yes, Elizabeth. Is the father here? And he said, suddenly a young man sort of leaning against the wall, looking through the window, said, I'm the father. 
Dr. Craddock said, I moved a little closer to him and looked again at the baby. Her mouth was wide open. Her little face was just red as could be. And I said, this is normal. This is natural. They, they cry. They cry. Strengthens their lungs. I'm sure she's doing fine. And the young daddy said, I know she's fine. She's just mad as hell. <laughs> and then he thought about, said, I- I'm sorry, Reverend. And Dr. Craddock said, it's okay. Why do you think she's so mad? And the young man said, well, wouldn't you be mad if one minute you're in heaven with God and the next minute you're in Georgia? (laughs) And Dr. Craddock said, so you think she was with God before she got here? Well, of course, the young man said. Dr. Craddock asked, do you think she'll remember that? And the daddy said, well, that's up to her mother and me and our church. It's our job to be sure she remembers, because if she ever forgets, she's a goner. <laughs> 